You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. But the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself, and it would make sense that we're memorizing that this week because we're actually going to be in the uh, Ten Commandments. Anybody, by show of hands, who is familiar with the idea or even hearing the phrase Ten Commandments? Like, we're like, oh yeah, Ten Commandments, like it's part of what we do. Um, Now, but more than that, who's familiar with the Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments? Anybody have like that picture? I think we have a picture of him. Yeah. Uh, So that's for some, uh, that's Johnny, that's for you. Like I'm trying to, it's a throwback. Some people are like, who's that old guy? That's not what Moses probably looked like. He's way too eloquent in that. Uh, So not the same. I thought about the Mel Brooks. I have these 15, you know, 10 commandments. I thought about maybe that as just something uh, for you guys but that didn't seem as appropriate. Uh, there's like a, like the, the middle here thought that was really funny. The sides were like, meh, you know, move along, Hans. But we do, let's just try to remember where we've been because we've now been through hundreds of years of history of the Bible thus far, hundreds in you know, eight Sundays. So we've covered a lot of ground and now remember, God creates the world and everything that's in it. It doesn't take long for man to screw that up. Genesis chapter three, there's the fall and the curse. But even in the curse, Genesis 3:15, God speaks about how there is gonna be this triumph over the seed of Satan, that something good is gonna come from this. So we get to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We end with the Tower of Babel and kind of the scattering of nations and languages, and then we slow down a ton in Genesis chapter 12. We get to the call of Abram, uh, who we know as Abraham, and God says, hey, I want you to go from your uh, nation, your family, your clan, I want you to go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and all who curse you I will curse, and through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Now that's gonna be an important part of how we think about the rest of the Bible. Through Abraham's obedience and the seed that comes from him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So you remember this kind of phrase, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We follow the rest of Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, follows Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what they do. The last part of Genesis really follows Joseph. So we did three sermons in Joseph to realize how did uh, the patriarchs get to Egypt? Because in fact, in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, you know, you'll die fine, but your descendants will be slaves and then they'll come out of that land. So there's this statement about what God's people will have happened to them. And we see as Genesis ends that Abraham or Jacob and his sons are there. And then we open up in Exodus. So Genesis ends with the nation beginning, the sons are really there in Egypt. And then we turn the page and we're in Exodus and a whole lot of years have passed. And now we get this this Pharaoh who did not know who Joseph was. And that was a way of saying, didn't give Joseph and his family the honor that Joseph once had, was unaware of it, was like, hey, you know, kind of what have you done for me lately? I don't really care who you are anymore. And so you had hundreds of thousands of Israelites now enslaved there in Egypt. And Pharaoh was giving them harder and harder work and they cried out and God remembered his words and his promises, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now remember, just a little point, remember that God is always responding and keeping with the way he has revealed himself. 
And so he's like, yeah, of course I'm gonna, these are the people that I've called out. These are the people that I'm blessing. And so they cry out and God raises up Moses and says to him, hey, I'm gonna use you and we're gonna get the nation out of the land. Moses' birth was through a set of uh, sovereign circumstances that he even lived, that he survived, was raised in Pharaoh's household, uh, and then goes to Pharaoh later in life and says, hey, let my people go, this is the Lord speaking through him, that they may worship me. We have, you know, Pharaoh's like, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, like back and forth. Uh, but we go through the plagues. Last week we did the Passover, specifically to see how uh, that's what made Pharaoh go, that's it, get out. But we had the Passover, and that was the plague of the first, firstborn. All the firstborn, uh, be it man or beast, died. If you didn't do what the Lord said, which is sacrifice, uh, this, this uh, lamb, one year old, put the blood on the doorpost, eat it like this, observe it like this, and then it, about midnight, I'm gonna pass over the land, and all, who ha- all in the house who have blood on the doorpost, I'll pass over, and those who don't will, will die. <clears throat> so now, the nation has <clears throat> been freed, at least out of the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh, knowing Pharaoh, we've seen him enough to know kind of what his style is. Pharaoh's like, you know what? <clears throat> Let's go get him. So he mounts up and he's ready to go after him and he's ready to go get the Israelites. And if you remember this part, now what happens? Yeah, the sea of reeds is parted and the Israelites walk through on dry land and then as Moses, or, uh, Pharaoh and his people are trying to go through to catch them, the sea comes back over them and they're destroyed and now God's people are on the other side and they are Uh, saved in a sense, right? They are preserved and protected from all of this, so there they are on the other side, and now what starts to happen? Well, there's a land God said he was gonna give to his people. They are not in that land yet, so it makes sense that we kind of shift towards going into the land, which is what we do. But before they do that, God starts to tell his people how he wants them to live. He starts to give instructions for how they're to operate together how they're supposed to uh, look after one another, how they're supposed to look after their own hearts and how they're supposed to keep him first, how they're supposed to treat their neighbor and how they're supposed to treat their parents. And there are certainly a lot of laws that begin to be divvied out there as we read Exodus, Leviticus, and we have it retold in Deuteronomy. Uh, But the 10 commandments, those are the ones that most of us are the most familiar with, at least in the phrase. Now. I think a lot of us go, yeah, Ten Commandments, then we have to start try and name them, and we're like, uh, some stuff about God, like you shall not do this, there's some things you shouldn't do that aren't good, and so we kind of can, like, if you give us enough shots, we'll probably get to naming all ten. But it's funny, because I think that believers today, we, we, we don't know how to, like, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Do we, do we obey them? Do we follow them? Do we not follow them? What are they doing specifically for Israel? What do they do for us today? A lot about these 10 in particular are important both for Israel and for us. But I think sometimes in our culture, we use them as like, if these just are posted somewhere, or if they're in a classroom, or if they're here, then like no one will do wrong. Well, if you understand what the law exists for, then you know that's not the case. That just having lists of laws around doesn't make you uh, automatically obey. So what's going on in Exodus chapter 20? How does it apply to us? Now, before we get into all of uh, those 17 verses of Exodus 20, 
I want to just first talk about the law. Like, what does the law do? And I would just say it like this, that giving the law, God's giving of the law to Israel reveals more of God's character. That, that we, we state things based upon who we are. Like if you are, if I were just to say, hey, some of, you, some of you families probably have like family rules, or this is what we do, or this is what we value, this is what we care about. Well, where do those come from? They often come from like what you believe is most significant. How do we treat one another? How do we care for one another? You know, how, what kind of chores do we do, right? Some of you kids are like, don't say chores, like I don't wanna do chores. Uh, but all of those reflect aspects of who we are. So when God is giving the law to Israel, it would make sense that he is revealing more of himself to them. He's showing them what he cares about what he loves, and how he would expect those who belong to him to live. Now, I would also say this, because we have to think like Christians, right? Like it's, it's, it, we're under a new covenant, Jesus has come, and so we need to remember that the law itself does not save. That you can't, by doing the law, get saved. In fact, as we read in the New Testament, the law exposes our inability to follow it and our need for forgiveness. You could have, it's true that when a law shows up, we're like, okay, how could I break it? And so it could be like speed limit 65, and you're like, yeah, well, 66, right? Or 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 we do this, we're like, that's stupid, right? We just kind of write it off as whatever we want. Like, well, hold on, that doesn't even matter. That law doesn't matter. So once laws show up, once boundaries show up, it is, seems to be human nature to try and then disobey them. Well, the same thing happens here. As God is revealing to his people how he would long for them to live, they are not that good at it. They are not that good at it. But the Ten Commandments The Ten Commandments really reveal a lot about the character of God, also the conduct by which he expects his people to operate. So they're not just guidelines. You know, though if you do them, you'll be better off, right? Like if, if you obey these, you'll be better off. But you won't be saved because salvation comes differently, comes through Jesus. But yeah, if I was just talking to somebody and I said, hey, do not commit adultery, like that'd be a good thing. It's good not to commit adultery. It's good not to steal. It's good not to murder. Those are okay things. It would be good if we all opted and agreed together, like we will not do these things. But they do much more than just kind of bind our consciences to what we should and shouldn't do. They point us more specifically to our need for God. So with that, we come to the New Testament era, right? We're believers, we're not under law, we're under grace. So the question then becomes, well, how do Christians relate to the law? Like when we read 10 commandments, we read these, like, is it like, well, you better do them, you better do all of them, and you know, in the way that they're prescribed, there's a, there's, a, there's a difference that happens between Old Testament and New Testament now that we are under gospel of grace. There is a difference. So when I say we're not under the law, Christians today aren't under the law, I mean as an authority. That authority is not what binds us. We're under grace, we belong to Jesus. So that is to say the law does not make you right with God and following it does not save you. Now remember when we did our Acts sermon, we had Acts 15. And Acts 15 specifically was like, hey, we can't even follow the law, we shouldn't make Gentiles follow the law because it doesn't work. 
The best Jew on his or her best day cannot obey the law. So we can't say you must do this in order to be saved because that was the issue in Acts chapter 15. Must they do these things in order to be saved? Only faith in Jesus saves. But, and this is important, living under grace doesn't mean that we reject the law. That we kind of go, hey, this is just ridiculous. We don't even need to read it. We don't even need to know it. We don't even need to follow it. Why? Because all scriptures God breathe. All scripture is profitable for how we live and grow, teach and train in godliness. All scripture is good for correcting us and reproving us and encouraging us. So we can't just kind of go, well, let's just tear it out of our Bibles because Jesus, because Jesus didn't tear it out of his. So this is what following Jesus is, right? We want to obey Jesus and obediently following Jesus as a disciple means that you will live and look more like Jesus. Now, in so doing, and this is the crazy part, you'll find yourself keeping much of the law. You won't be keeping all the law, but as you bind your heart and you follow after Jesus and you is Lord of, life, Lord of your life and you submit to his rule and you listen to the things that he says and you care about the things that he, he cares about, you will find yourself following many of the things that are stated in the Old Testament to do. You'll find yourself treating people in many ways the Old Testament asks you to treat people. You will find yourself loving many of the things that God would want you to love. But the source is different. The source isn't just following the law, the source is obeying Jesus. Right? So we've kind of moved our allegiance from the words that are said to the one who gives the law and the one who is the perfect fulfillment of that law. So we follow him. Now, all the law is not the same Old Testament to New Testament. Jesus has spoken differently about some, specifically the Sabbath is one that he has talked uniquely about and has reframed for us to think about. He's expanded some. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he says something like this. Hey, you've heard it say, don't murder. Well, here's the deal. If you even get angry at somebody or you hate them in your heart, you're done. You've already done it. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. Well, even if you look at somebody lustfully, like, you've already committed adultery. And so in some places, Jesus has actually expanded what we read here. He's made it more difficult to follow. Again, pointing to our need for grace. So thus the law specifically revealed here in the Ten Commandments serves a unique purpose today. It guides but it doesn't save. It convicts, but it doesn't condemn. Why? Because we belong to Jesus. So with that, I know it's a long introduction, but as we talk about law as Christians, like what do we do with the law? Uh, they're not just guidelines, they reveal God to us. So we need to understand how we relate to them and that we should obey these things because they're reflective of God's heart. We don't obey these things so that we gain God's heart because they're reflective of God's heart, and where they're not specifically expanded or adjusted, then they stand. Now, to the Ten Commandments. I know it's a long, long intro. The Ten Commandments breaks down basically as four commandments and six commandments. The first four commandments are about one's relationship with God, and the next six commandments are really about the relationship people have with one another, reflective of their relationship with God. So, I'm gonna summarize the first four like this. God's people must keep him first. 
Pretty simple summary. God's people must keep him first, and this is how he says this. Exodus 20, we'll start with the first two, kind of an intro. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's identifying themselves with his work for them. I'm your God. So it makes sense that he's then going to give them some ways he expects for them to operate. Let's look at the first two. First one, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is kind of an expansion upon that idea. Not just no other gods before me, you're not going to express them. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, an idol, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is in the earth beneath, or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting, odd phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, keep, who, who love me and keep my commandments. So just those first two commands sound like this. I'm first in everything. I'm first in everything. You shall have nothing else before me. And you shall create no other idol of any kind. You shall not bow down to it. You shall not worship it. So you see how these two connect. You shall have no other gods before me. I am supreme in your life. I am the most significant thing. And you shall express nothing. You don't even make expressions of me. Now, if you keep reading, you'll realize when the golden calf shows up, what happens? They kind of boil everything down. They throw their rings and everything into the fire. While Moses is up on the mountain, like they're seeing God interact with Moses, and they're like, this is getting a little tiring. Let's go ahead and you know, move this along. And so they melt everything down, and they make this calf. And what does Aaron say? Here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? It's, it's, like it's human nature to take something unseen and try and make it seen. And God's going, you can't do that. You can't do that. Why does he say that you cannot do that? Well, I'm a jealous God. Jealousy doesn't seem like the coolest attribute to give to God. Like we think of the jealous boyfriend or the jealous girlfriend or the jealous spouse, whatever it might be, like the jealous person. Like jealousy's not like, man, you know, what's the best thing about you? I'm super jealous. Jealous all the time. I'm just jealous of everybody. I'm jealous of everything. But here's how God can call himself jealous and mean it. God knows he is best for his people. He knows he's best for his people. And if he's best for his people, then he should say, you shouldn't go after other things because you will not be satisfied with those things. You will not love those things fully and those things will not love you. I am the best thing for you. Israel's like, la, 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 la. Like, like this is what we all do, right? We don't listen to that. And it doesn't take long for that to be disobeyed. Now there's this other phrase. And for those of you who are familiar with kind of how the Old Testament speaks, he goes, I'm the jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. There are passages in the Old Testament that seem to say children aren't punished for their father's sins. And then things like this where it's like, but you're visiting the iniquity for generations? And so we have both of those. I mean, you could go to Deuteronomy 24, 16 if you're just taking silly notes. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 29, Ezekiel 18, 2, Job 21, 19. They all have ways in which they're saying, I don't punish children for the sins of their father. 
So why does God say I'm jealous and I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the, on the children to the third and fourth generation? But look at this, of those who hate me. And this is what I think is going on here is that the disobedience of a father, of a mother, of an older generation directly impacts obedience or disobedience of future generations. He's not saying that, that if, if this generation is disobedient, then automatically everyone else is just damned. What he's saying is that generational consequences of sin run deeply, but we know God's heart. So at any time, if any generation and if any person turns to him and confesses and repent, he's not like, nope, I kind of said in Exodus chapter 20, like we have a few more generations to go, that's not how he works. So at any time, anyone in disobedience can turn to God. Now there may be consequences for that disobedience that linger, but they can turn to God and be forgiven. So this isn't as if God is just going, hey, I'm always going to be mad at your disobedience forever. But he's going, for those who hate me generation after generation, yeah, I'm gonna to continue to visit that. They will continue to receive the consequences of that sin. And at the same time, those who follow me and love me receive great blessing. That's how it works. But we need to recognize the weight of that is that our obedience, be it as parents, as believers, as an older generation, our obedience impacts the walks of others. It impacts them. We're all accountable to God for our own sinfulness, and we all need to go to God for our own salvation, but the way in which we live directly impacts others. I'm reading this book right now. I'm actually listening to this book right now, uh, so I'll say reading because it makes me sound smarter. Uh, have you guys read or, or watched the movie Beautiful Boy? Uh, but it's about addiction, and that's just a, that's something I, I care about. I don't know why I say it that way, but like, uh, my heart breaks for people who are in addiction cycles and it's just such a rampant way people operate and it's written by the perspective of the father dealing with the son who has an addiction. And throughout his telling of the story, he's kind of popping out of uh, the story itself and offering his own thoughts. And throughout it, he's wondering, did I somehow he even admits to his atheism in this, but he goes, did I somehow have something to do with where my son got, how he is the way that he is? Because something that we always think about, like, did, did, I, die? did I do this? And of course, if you've ever been a part of Al-Anon or anything like that, they're gonna say, no, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, right? They're gonna give you those words. Uh, but he's like, I just have a hard time believing that. I have a hard time believing that because of maybe how I lived or what I encouraged or anything like that. And so we see kind of the realization that how we live, how we live impacts others. What we value impacts others. What we love impacts others. I used to tell um, people all the time uh, in former ministry environments, like you often do a greater job discipling your kids towards which football teams to love than discipling your kids into what Lord they should love. That, that, that you train them for hours on a Saturday on how to care about certain things and what cheers to do and what things to, to be glad about and what things not to be glad about and what to love and what to hate and how to spend your time and what to wear. You train them for hours, year after year after year after year and then like you get together to worship on a Sunday and you're like, man, I'm tired, like, we're just gonna sleep in. 
well, then you should expect to realize that you're training future generations and what they should value. You're showing them what they care about. You don't know you're doing that, but that's what he's saying. I'm a jealous God. I'm the best thing for you. And yet, if you're going to be disobedient generation after generation, then you will realize that future generations will often reap that disobedience. You see the same thing. I've talked about judges before in the book of Judges. Like one generation rises up, and they, uh, a judge comes, and there's peace in the land for the time of that judge. And then that judge dies, and they kind of go back down, and they forget. And they wander in disobedience. And in fact, if you read Judges, it kind of cycles downward. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so the judge that we probably remember the most, Samson, like he's terrible. He has a couple of good moments, but all in all, like that guy's not a guy you want to hang out with. You probably wouldn't want your kids hanging out with him. Like, hey, you should go hang out with Samson. Like, no. Like, don't don't go near them because he's like, hey, you want to go get drunk and go look at the ladies down the road? Like, that's what he's going to say to you. But this is what Samson does. So God first, God first over everything. He gives two more in his relationship to them. Verse seven through 11. Verse seven says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse eight, that's the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, holy, set apart, different, unique. So the first we see there in that, the third commandment, don't take the, uh, the Lord's name in vain. Now, we often look at that as specific uses of profanity, but it is much more than that. The idea behind that is do not treat the Lord's name as empty, hollow, common. Then we can just throw it around as if it bears no weight and has no significance. That's what he's saying. It's not just don't swear. It's, don't, don't say, don't talk about God as if he's empty. Don't use God's name as if it means nothing. It's significant, and it's weighty, and he's holy, and he's good, and he's loving. And so when you say it, mean it. Don't be empty or casual with how you talk about God. It doesn't mean you have to be also, though, like, Oh, glorious, gracious, goodness, God. Like, you don't have to do that either, like, w- like wavering in your voice. But when you use the words of God, when you speak of him, his name carries the weight it deserves. And so you talk about it with the way he deserves to be talked about. You speak of him with the way he deserves to be spoken about. You don't treat it as if it means Nothing. There are so many throwaway words we have in this culture, things that we say, things that we do, that really we think mean nothing. And what God is saying is, don't dare associate myself with nothingness, because I am everything. So when you speak of me, mean it. Does that include profanity? Sure, the way we would invoke God's name. Does that include swearing? We say, I swear to God. Because we see, Old and New Testament, hey, don't do that. 
Don't do that. Don't swear by heaven or by earth or anything under the earth. What does Jesus say in his half-brother James? Like, just say yes or no. Because if you believe in who God is, then your word should matter as anyways. So you just say yes or no. You don't bring God into it in that way because you belong to him. God's people, of course, would have integrity. So don't invoke his name for empty purposes. And then we get to the Sabbath. Now, this is a funny one. Because you'll notice, if you kind of look at it, there are two commands, the second command and the fourth command, they get a whole lot of space of the Ten Commandments. Once we get to kind of five through ten, it's like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But we look at the second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol, and there's a lot of explanation about that. Then there's the one, you shall honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, and there's a lot of explanation about that. Like God's kind of giving, guiding principles there. So for Israel, this is what he was saying. I created this world and all that was in it in six days and I rested on the seventh. So you too should work for six days and rest on the seventh. That's what you should do. That's how you should operate. Now we see pretty quickly uh, that the keeping of that is not the, it's not the sharpest. But people were put to death, as we've read. People are put to death for gathering sticks on a Saturday. You're just picking up some sticks, like, kill him. That seems intense. But he says this, no one, no animal, no person, no visitor should do any work on the Sabbath. Why? Because I want my people to reflect the rhythm that I myself had. Work and rest, and work and rest. Did God need to rest, remember? He wasn't tired. I wasn't like, oh gosh, creation. I have not done that in eternity and I'm just so exhausted now. I need a day. He didn't need a day. What was he doing? Preparing even then to show his people how to operate. Preparing even then to say, hey, for six days I worked, one day I rested, so you should do the same. What does rest teach us? What does sleeping even teach us? That we are not in control. There are between four and eight or nine hours, depending on what day it is and how much sleep I get, where anything in the world could happen and I could do zero about it. Zero. Like, I'm unconscious. I'm not even there. I don't know what's going on. I just wake up. I'm like, I hope all is well. So God is saying, you must remember and you must rest and you rest to remember who he is. But this is an interesting one because this commandment is the one most specifically modified in the New Testament. It's the one that gets the the most different instruction by Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, he does this. Where Jesus does work on the Sabbath. He does work that the Pharisees would say, you shouldn't do. He gathers grain, he heals, he does good things on the Sabbath. Everyone's like, wait a minute! You shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't be living like that. It's the Sabbath day. And he corrects the understanding. Hey, listen, David did it. Who wouldn't want to do good on the Sabbath? And so what you see Jesus doing, and this is a hard connection for us to make, is because I would, I would doubt that there is a person in this room who honors or obeys the Sabbath. I'm just guessing here. You do something. You turn your computer on, you're on your phone, you gather some sticks, you cook, whatever you do, right? Like, like you do things 
that break this command. That there is not a day where you're just like, I'm done. 24 hours, nothing. I'm just going to sit here and worship. I mean, you drove today. You should probably get in trouble for that. But Jesus has changed our understanding. Yeah, it's good to gather. It's good to do work. It's good to do good work. But at the same time, that principle of rest, that you aren't God, that remains. You're not God. To remind yourself that you're not God. Workaholism, not a good thing. Burning the candle at both ends, not a good thing. And so though we are not at Genesis and most Protestant churches are not Sabbatarian and that we go, hey, this is the thing, we do nothing, we recognize the principle of gathering and remembering God. But the day is also shifted. It's not Saturday. That was the Jewish Sabbath, it's Saturday. It's for us often Sunday. Why? Because that's the day Jesus rose. So you see in Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you see references to the believers gathering on the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus rose. That they're shifting, shifting the idea of when they gather to reflect the work of their Savior. And you see nowhere God being like, that's a terrible idea. You see nowhere in the New Testament where the people are going, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. You should gather on Saturday. They're gathering on Sunday. So from the very beginnings of the church, the church had started to gather on the day Jesus rose. So is there value in gathering, remembering, setting aside, reducing workload, giving attention to God, worshiping him, focusing upon him, not allowing work to creep in to that seventh day? Absolutely, absolutely. But remember that we are in Christ and Christ has taught us a little differently about the Sabbath. He's changed kind of a way that we view it. But these first four, remember these first four commandments. God must, God's people must keep him first. They keep him first in their worship. They keep him first in their habits. They keep him first in their speech. They keep him first in how they spend their week. They remember him in their activities. This is what he's saying. It's not just kind of like, just think about him first. There are habits associated with keeping him first. There's things you don't do in keeping him first. There's things that you do in keeping him first. And then from there, he moves to the next six. And the next six still reflect him. They still reflect aspects of his character and his nature, what he loves, but it's in how they then operate together. And this is where we get like boom, 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 boom. They just kind of come on through. Verse 12, honor your father, and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul actually repeats that in Ephesians. Honor your father and mother, uh, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and just in case you didn't know, you should not covet your neighbor's wife. You should not covet your neighbor's male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. A lot of explanation on that one too. And I remember our kids were reading this last week and one of them was like, people had donkeys? That was his, that was like, that was his takeaway. I was like, let's talk about, you know. <laughs> it's weird that people had donkeys. I said, yeah. Different, different way they made money, different way that their world operated. People have donkeys today too. 
but I was like, ask one question. And I said, hey, read this, ask your parents a question about this. And their question was like, why do people have donkeys? That's weird. The other one goes, what's adultery? And I was like, okay. So those are the two questions we got recently <clears throat> from a nine and seven year old. We treated the donkey question first, but we answered both. So honor your father and mother has to do with the recognition of the authority that God has put in your life. In fact, that commandment never stops. It doesn't stop at 18, it doesn't stop at 21, it doesn't stop when you move out, though it shifts, right? Honor, I mean, Genesis teaches us, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so the kind of the, the, the locus of authority is moved, but the recognition of honoring father and mother doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at any age. I remember hearing uh, Eugene Merrill, uh, Old Testament professor, talk about his mother who was in her 90s, I believe. Uh, and he was in his 70s. And he's like, this still applies to me. I still need to honor my mom. I still need to, to give her honor in the role that she has in my life and, the way, and who God has given to me. So you never really stop that. Though the way you live it out is different. Of course, when you're in your parents' home, there's authority there that you must, at every instance, obey. For every kid in the room, like, this doesn't stop. But for every parent in the room, this doesn't stop for us. It's just different. Honor Honor your parents is always there. The hardest questions are when people are like, well, how do you honor a parent who doesn't know the Lord? How do you honor a parent who has wandered from the Lord? How do you honor a parent who has been rude? How do you honor a parent who's a jerk? And my answer to that is, you know what? I don't know the best ways all the time. I don't know the best ways to honor. Like, I like to just kind of put it in a vacuum, like, well, assume everybody loves the Lord. Then it becomes really easy. Right? Everyone loves the Lord, then the parents have a healthy perspective, the kids have a healthy perspective, but you, you kind of screw with any single one of those, you mess that thing up, what happens? I don't know, like, it becomes different. How do you honor a parent who has hurt you, who has harmed you? Like, well, I guess you, you pray for them, you, you love them, if they're in need, you care as you're able to care. But also, like, you don't just latch yourself totally to them. Those are harder ones to do. But the obedience to the Lord to honor parents never stops. In fact, Paul says like this, hey, this is the first commandment with a promise. It actually has something attached to it. That you may have great days and your days may be long in the land. Now, I do think there's an assumption that obedience is here that father and mother are following after the Lord. Children, honor your fathers and mothers. Because what does God want? God wants hearts of people who love him. And so I do think it's fair to say there is an assumption of obedience, but it doesn't, it's not exclusive. That your days may be long in the land. Why? Because God's expectation is that who he is and what he's done and how he loves is continually passed down from generation to generation. This is why I love what's going on in kids' ministry right now. It's like there are people teaching your kids about how God is good, about the Ten Commandments, about how they should obey, about how they should follow. They're reinforcing at every turn. I love uh, training up my kids, but I also love you guys helping me train up my kids. I love you encouraging them to pursue God, to follow him, to trust him, to know him, because that is how God expects knowledge of him to continue, to be trained up and continually taught. 
You shall not murder. Why? Because life, the giving and taking is God's and God's alone. It is not ours. The right to give and take is his. So when we murder, we are essentially usurping God's authority in that role. We're taking it from him. You shall not commit adultery to break the covenant between husband and wife to give yourself to another. The way that I first explained it to my kids was adultery is like, uh, it, it would be like when I was acting married with someone who's not your mom. That's how, I, that's how the seven-year-old hears it. The nine-year-old, I added some words. Because you break the covenant that God has given. And what is God? God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises and he wants his people to keep their promises and keep their relationships because that is a reflection of him. We see this even more fully realized as we get into Christ and the church, the relationship between Christ and the church, right? Is that, is that when husbands and wives care for one another, they're reflecting the nature of God. They're reflecting a character of God. They're reflecting who Christ is for the church and how a husband cares for his wife. So we see that this commandment, which Jesus expands, which feels like infinitely, is important because it reveals God and really his fidelity to his people. Because God has never left his people. God has never not been concerned. There have been seasons of punishment. There have been seasons of uh, disobedience and then his discipline that comes along. But never once has God said, see ya suckers, I'm out. Never once. Why? Because he keeps his word. So when he says don't commit adultery, he's going, you keep it. Stay committed. Stay faithful. It reflects me. You are not to steal. You're not to steal. Because what is stealing and even, even coveting? What is stealing and coveting? Coveting is the desire. Stealing is the action. What do those two things teach about maybe what we believe or don't believe about God. Stealing and coveting says, God has not given me what I need. He's not given me what I need. He's given you what I need. And I deserve to take it from you. So stealing and coveting are acts of, they're acts of discontent with what God has provided and rebellion against God for trying to grasp and grab onto things that he has not granted. You can see how, as we go through these, so many of them apply directly to how we operate today. Yeah, I shouldn't steal. You see Paul say this, hey, let the thief steal no longer but to work. He says this, don't steal anymore, work. Work hard with your hands. Provide for your needs, don't take. Why? God is a provider, we are workers, and when we steal or when we covet, we are saying there are things other people have that belong to me. And in a sense, we are rebelling against God. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What is a society if we cannot trust what other people say? It's what we have. It's what we've always had. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie to give false testimony. Why? 
Why? Because God's people should have integrity. They should be able to speak honestly and truthfully about what they have seen, about what is going on. Now again, think, right? go to 1 Corinthians chapter five or chapter six when Paul is giving instruction on how they should live and he's like, why do you guys sue one another? He's so frustrated. Why do you sue one another? You should be able to handle your disagreements without going to the courts. You should be able to say, hey, this is what I see and this is what's going on and come to some type of resolution about wronging one another without going outside the church family. Why? Because we belong to God. We should be able to do this. And yet we don't. We are so often suspicious, much more often than we are trusting of what people say and how they act. You don't have to raise your hands, I know it's true. Right, I remember a professor being like, I say something in class and the whole class gets on their computers and looks it up to be sure that what I said was true. Yeah, like man, there's no trust. Well, let's just see if you really said it. Why? Because we gotcha, you were wrong. God's concern is that we can speak honestly, testify honestly, keep our word. This is one of the hardest things for me with my kids is I want to go, hey, when you hear me say something, you know I mean it. I will not lie to you. I will not lie to you. If you ask me a question, I will tell you the answer, or I will tell you I am not going to answer the question. But I'm not going to give you some kind of parental fluff that makes my life easier and makes you more confused. You need to be able to understand and trust the things that I say. And I say the same thing to you guys. Man, yeah, I'm going to try to answer everything I can. If you have a question, I'm going to tell you. Why? Because the Lord has in Christ given all of himself to us. He has left nothing hidden that is needed for salvation. He has given us everything. He has always spoken truthfully and honestly. He has revealed all of himself to us that we need for our salvation. And so why shouldn't the believer be honest and upright and speak truthfully to one another? And yet this is something that is so hard for us to do because we want to self-protect. We want to look good, be right, act right, have people's impressions of us be better than they are or than it is. But 10, 10 of these, this is a lot for us to hold on to. So I'm grateful for Jesus. Because I can't even follow 10. And yet Jesus gratefully, and I'm grateful for it, and graciously summarizes these 10 essentially like this. Love God, love neighbor. Our memory verse for this coming week goes like this, right? He, Jesus, said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these. You can see the breakdown, the first four. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all that you have. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Commands five through 10. And so God gives us in Christ, he goes, this is it that you love God with all that you have. You love neighbor with all that you have. So for us, the first thing that I see and I think and I feel is this, that we need to realize yours, mine, our need for grace. 
because not one of us has ascended to the expectation that God would have for us. I saw on Twitter, I think it was yesterday, grace seems unfair until you need a little. And you're like, yep. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, don't be gracious with them, but be gracious with me, please. They're like, we want it. Seems unfair until you realize your need for it. And even then, it's still unfair, but you're glad. Because there isn't one of those 10. There isn't one of the expanded in the Sermon on the Mount. There isn't one aspect of God's law that we have perfectly kept. And so, we just have to go, Lord, have mercy on me. And in his son, he has, through faith in Christ, his perfect fulfillment of the law is given to us. And we are treated as if we have perfectly obeyed the law because of the work of Jesus. That's the first. The second is this, grow in godliness. These two things work together. Continue to strive and work and long for continued growth in the Lord. Both of those are aspects of what we do. That we can look at these and go, Lord, are there areas where I could grow in my love for you and my love for neighbor and my ability to speak with integrity and honesty? We don't do it to gain his approval. We do it to be more like him and to look more like him. So whether we are realizing for the first time our need for grace or realizing that we need to continue to grow in godliness, what? The Lord is there to grab us. Because he's never left us. He's always there. He's always good. He's always caring. That is what we see. And we see it fully fulfilled in Jesus, our law keeper. So that we can be forgiven and that we can follow him with all that we have. So pray with me as we do that. Heavenly Father, there is nothing, nothing that you have hidden from us that we need for our salvation. You have given it all. Even as we read a list of commands and laws, we see your grace in them because you capture us, you care for us, you love us. God, guide us in your truth. Keep us close to you. Thank you that Jesus is our law keeper. Thank you that through faith in him we have life. Thank you for the grace that we have, the grace that we need to follow you. Root these ideas in our hearts deeply that we might reflect our Savior more and more each day in how we live toward you and how we care for one another. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.